Tonight we are going to do Hebrews 13. We are going to do chapters uh, or verses 3 through 7. And there are some things that after we're done with Hebrews, I'm going to come and revisit. Um, marriage, fornication. Those two topics that I think are going to be very important to dive into in a deeper way. But for now, I'm not going to get too far into it. Again, for anybody listening... Uh, if they want to hear the rest of the Hebrew study and a bunch of other stuff, you can go and join Patreon at patreon.com forward slash creation instruction. I always try to say that without sounding like it's a radio ad. I can't. It just it just comes out that way. It's like patreon.com. Yeah, so might as well have fun with it, I guess. So let's get started. Hebrews 13.3 says this, Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Uh, you got to keep in mind the time frame of when this is going on. This is really during the, the time of Nero. And Nero was a terrible emperor who persecuted the Christians. He burned down Rome, and then they blamed the Christians for doing it. Uh, you can kind of read some of that in history. Um, he was basically rising to power at this point, and he was putting a lot of Christians in prison. And I'd like to go through some of that history, but I'm going to skip that tonight to cover some other things. But bottom line is, I want you to understand that when this is being written, this was very real. All right, When he's talking about remember the prisoners, these were brothers and sisters of his in Christ that were in prison at that moment. And... I don't want you to forget that we're entering into that quite possibly right now. We've already got like that pastor in Canada who's in jail right now. We've got Christians around the world who are being persecuted. We have been protected in our little bubble and we must not forget this because it's real. And uh, that prayer is important and that's why I was saying I think it meant something to me today knowing what I had prepared here for today thinking this is what church is supposed to be we need to be praying for one another on a regular basis so anyway I want to take you here to Luke 21 because there's other verses here that Jesus warned us that this was going to happen and I think we've forgotten that in our blessed life that we have here today it says but before all these things, they will lay up their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But I want you to understand here two things. Notice it's not just the government that's going to be persecuting you. The synagogues, the churches of that day also were the ones doing the persecution. And I got news for you today, we're in a society that if you're standing on truth and, and a gospel that is solid, where it's not just as, oh, Jesus loves you, but hey, we need to repent of our sins, that we are sinners, we have broken God's commands, you will be persecuted by the church today. If you're not being persecuted by the church, there is a good possibility we're doing something wrong. Because I think the church, and I mean little c church, has become that compromised with, I think, a false gospel, a social gospel in some cases, no gospel in other cases. So, Jesus warned us that if you confess Jesus, Yeshua, as Lord, truly confess him, that's what's in your heart, and you're living it out, you will be persecuted. It's not you might be, you will be. You're going to lose friends, you might lose jobs, you might uh, lose family, but you will be persecuted. The time of flirting with the world is over. It should have never started. But nonetheless, I think that Christianity has been doing that pretty well. We have been flirting with the world and it's time that we wake up and say enough is enough. Yeah. We have made church Burger King. Have it your way. 
We send out. What's that? Yeah. Hey, now don't don't not Golden Corral, okay? <laughs> um, it is. It's been have it your way. We survey our congregations to see what they want. Okay. It doesn't matter what you want. It doesn't matter what I want. What matters is what truth is. And that is not the period that Paul was living in. That is not what Hebrews is talking about. That's not how they got put in jail, was by having it their way. They got put in jail because they did it God's way. And I think this is a good example I'm going to take you to uh, Acts chapter 12 to give you an example of what Hebrews is talking about here. In Acts chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now about the time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Okay, we're kind of living in a world like that. You might say Biden has extended his hand to start harassing some in the church. Governors, uh, you know, some pastors, some churches. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, supposedly Christians, not, but supposedly, it says he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread. That's the period we're in, well, next week, really, ultimately about, right? Passover. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. This is Herod Agrippa as well. Agrippa was in like 41 to 44 AD. And um, after killing James, and he goes after Peter here, it's going to be kind of an interesting thing as we see some of Herod's uh, background. I'll get to that in a second. Because Herod Agrippa lived as a Jew. So when it says that he saw that it pleased the Jews, he was kind of looking for their favor. And most of it was for political reasons, but there was some, he has Jewish background to him. All right, And uh, I'll explain more of that later. But uh, according to history, Herod Agrippa went to the temple all the time. And so the Jews had some respect for him because of that. Um, so likewise, when he sees that this is pleasing the Jews, he's just feeding on that. It wasn't as much of a hatred towards Christianity as much as it was to try and, oh, this is going to build me up and, and help the Jews that way. So um, I'm going to show you what Josephus says about this, okay? Josephus says of, of Herod Agrippa here, he also came to Jerusalem and offered all the sacrifices that belonged to him and omitted nothing which the law required. On which account he ordained that many of the Nazarites should have their heads shorn. And for the golden chain which had been given him by Caius of equal weight with that iron chain wherewith his royal hands had been bound, he hung it up within the limits of the temple over the treasury." Now that probably means nothing to you, but let me explain what was going on here. Agrippa told the Nazarites, remember the Nazarite vow? We see Paul, it seems, maybe took a Nazarite vow. We see Samson. Uh, we see Samuel, which by the way, I was reading here a couple weeks ago about Samuel. And for whatever reason, it just hit me for the first time. I, I brought it home and I read something and I asked her, I said, who is this talking about? And it said that a razor should never touch his head. And she goes, Samson. And I thought, no, it's Samuel. It's Samuel. It seems that Samuel, I have a whole new picture. You know, I always picture Samuel in my head as this, you know, well-groomed guy. I kind of now picture him as the uh, Lord of the Rings, is it? The, the white-haired guy, long hair. Because he never cut his hair. And that was a picture that I had never had. But anyway, that's a Nazarite vow. So anyway, um... What Agrippa is telling the Nazarites is keep your vow. He's encouraging them to do this. Why? Well, because the chains that he's talking about were the chains that he himself wore when he was in prison. Agrippa uh, 
was imprisoned for some, I think, political reason or whatever. And he just kept a, a positive attitude about it and got out of prison. So he took those chains that he had been chained up with, covered them in gold, and hung them up in the temple here. It says he hung it up within the limits of the temple over the treasury. Basically as a sign to say, look what you can do. You can rise up from being beaten and low and hopeless to be king. And so it was a, a, a sign of encouragement. This is what Josephus tells us anyway. Okay, It goes on and it says that it might be a memorial of the severe fate that he had lain under and a testimony of his change for the better that it might be a demonstration how the greatest prosperity may have a fall and that God sometimes raises up what is fallen down. For this chain thus dedicated afforded a document to all men that King Agrippa had been once bound in a chain for a small cause but recovered his former dignity again. And so, again, he had a great relationship with the Jews, even encouraging them, keep this Nazarite vow. You guys can rise up. Well, he goes on and it says, But after a very little while, the young men of Doris, preferring a rash attempt before piety, and being naturally bold and insolent, carried a statue of Caesar's into a synagogue of the Jews, and erected it there. This procedure of theirs greatly provoked Agrippa. In other words, Agrippa was livid that somebody brought a statue of Caesar, who he should be for, into the temple. So, it again, is just giving you some of the insight into Agrippa and the Jews. That even he was angry when Caesar's statue was brought into the temple. And it kind of helps you understand why he is responding in the book of Acts here the way he does, trying to please the Jews because he had a relationship with them. Okay? So in essence, to some extent, Agrippa cares about the law. He cares about the Jews. He cares about the temple. But yet he's still doing the work of the Antichrist. He's not a believer in Yeshua. So... Kind of an interesting figure. And honestly, I think we see a lot of people in church today like that. They, they seem to care about Christianity and whatnot, but yet they're doing the work of Satan. We've talked about them many times. Anyway, going back to Acts chapter 12, verse 4. So, so when he had arrested him, Peter, he put him in prison, delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover, as we read. So... This is a time of the festivals. Passover, we've got everybody coming to Jerusalem. From everywhere in Israel, they're coming to Jerusalem. And so there's a lot going on. It's a big celebration. And Peter, knowing this, is probably preparing himself for death in his mind. Uh, Knowing that James has already been killed, now I'm arrested. Uh, This is my last Passover. In verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Keep in mind the context of what Hebrews verse 3 is talking about here in chapter 13. He tells us, don't forget to keep praying for those in prison. And that is exactly what the church was doing here. Don't forget to pray for that Canadian pastor. Anyway, um, How does this work out for Peter as a result of these prayers? And I'm convinced that that was a big part of it. Verse 6, when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. And, well, I'll read a little bit more. I'm going to jump ahead maybe to verse 11. But as you know, uh, bottom line is this angel appears to him, and he kind of thinks he's dreaming. But this angel takes the chains, just fall right off of him. The door just opens up. He walks right out and, you know, right past the guards, everything. Verse 11, it says this, When Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. When he had come to himself, all of a sudden, it's just like, This is not a dream. 
That's how real some of his dreams must have been. Um, which to me is fascinating in itself. It continues. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, You're beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, It's his angel. Now, this gives you a little insight into what the Jewish records tell us they see as angels. We know that Hebrews, as we've talked about already in the past, that God has created angels for what purpose? To be ministers to the heirs of salvation. Who are the heirs of salvation? Right here. I'm looking at you. I love to hear people say, you know, when people die, uh, they're an angel in heaven right now. It's like, uh, no, don't demote them. That is a demotion to be an angel in heaven because God has created angels to serve you. And so many people think angels are kind of like the, you know, the goal to reach. <laughs> and I think, wow, this is why Peter says the angels even long to look into the gospel. That blows my mind. The angels who, who have, were there at creation, who have seen all of the history, all of the miracles, Jesus on the cross, all of this, they look and they long to understand that. They look, long to look into the gospel. Can you imagine what they must think of us when we have this amazing gift of the gospel and we treat it as if it's nothing? They must be looking at you going, how can I minister to you? I just think they look at that and they marvel at the gift God has given us. And we, oh, thanks God, now let me go, uh, man, I really want to get a new boat. You know? And they marvel at that. That just blows my mind. Um, it was because of prayer. What I find interesting is what were these people doing as they were inside praying when this happens. And it, it says that where many were gathered together praying. What a wonderful blessing to see their prayers being answered at that moment. While they were praying, an angel is leading him out of prison right then. Didn't know it, but they just kept praying. And here he knocks at the door, and look at their lack of faith in their prayer. Nonsense woman. <laughs> Can't be. It's his angel. Now, I never finished that. How they saw angels. The Jews believe that everybody has an angel that looks just like you. So this whole idea, you've got a guardian angel, that's what they believe. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I can't find anything in Scripture that says that specifically. I will tell you, some of you know uh, Mrs. Uden, Cindy Uden. Um, she told me once when she was, I think, in high school or college, I don't remember which, but I think high school, her and her sister were runners, and they would get up early and run. And one morning she uh, just didn't feel like getting up and uh, running, or something like that. Anyway, she goes, the, the sisters would go together. Well, the one sister went and said to her that she didn't feel like very good, so don't, you know, I'm not going to run today. And I think maybe the same thing happened to the other sisters so that they both heard the same thing. Well, this may not be exactly right to the story. I don't remember all the details, but bottom line is this. They didn't go running that day when they always did because... They saw each other telling them not to go running. And that day, at the very time they would have been at this spot, there was this big accident and whatnot. And she said, I really believe we would have died that morning. And neither one of them went to the other. They said, I didn't go tell my sister I didn't feel good. She came to me. But it, it was my sister. I saw my sister. Okay, now we just got done talking last week, was it, about do not, you know, for sake, entertaining strangers because in so doing some have entertained angels without knowing. So, I don't know, I just find that interesting. I don't know if everybody has an angel that looks just like them or not. I just know that God created angels to minister to you. But it seems that that's what the Jews believed and that's what we're seeing here. Nonsense, woman. It's his angel. 
they believed that they were seeing, yeah, you saw somebody that looked like Peter, but that was his angel. Now, to me, I wouldn't be saying nonsense. I'd be like, really, you just saw an angel? But they're like, that's his angel. <laughs> you know? But anyway, the, my point in taking us here is just to show you the example of what Hebrews is showing us. There is a power in this prayer. It's amazing. A living example from Scripture here of what Hebrews is talking about. We can read that in Hebrews verse, chapter 10, or 13, verse 3. Read over it, but not put it into perspective of, wait, this is what this is talking about. We need to be praying for each other. When we're sick, when, as this world is falling apart, that each of us would be protected. You know, Mark is very good. Uh, Steve James. I get texts from them time to time saying, I prayed for you today. And uh, that always is just such an encouragement that I know somebody's praying for me. And those prayers are not going unheard by the Lord. I always get frustrated sometimes with nursing homes, these storage houses of wisdom, that we take these people who we should be learning from, all the wisdom that these, you know, our parents, our grandparents have, and instead we put them away in some nursing home, go visit them once a month or whatever the case might be, and yet that's who we should be going to. And we think, so many in society think that they, they're no longer a benefit to society. Some of the greatest people in the world are in those nursing homes because they are the ones that are the prayer warriors praying for their children and their grandchildren and, and, and we treat it as if it's no big deal. And yet that's one of the most important things. It's just so sad to me to see what we have done uh, with the elderly. I know my wife went to a, a baby shower one time too and it was interesting. The grandparents were sitting quietly while the new mother was getting all this advice from the new mothers that maybe had kids one, two, three years ago, four years ago, and the grandparents are just sitting there being quiet. And where should we be going? We should be going to those who have had the experience that just haven't raised a three, four-year-old, but who have raised a 25-year-old or a 40-year-old. And so anyway, I'm kind of a little off track, but it kind of does fit in the sense of this. A, a praying grandparent is so important. Don't, don't underestimate the power of that. And don't, if you have a grandparent still alive, don't let that go to waste. Go take advantage of that. And glean as much as you can from them now. You know, especially godly ones. Anyway, I'm going to jump back a little bit in Hebrews chapter 10 because we also see uh, the same kind of thing talked about here. It says, But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me, in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven this is one of the verses that I keep coming back to in my head the memory it's in, it's in NIV but they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property knowing that they had better and lasting possessions joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property to me that verse has come in mind a lot because we may be coming really close to that. The confiscation of your guns, your home, who knows what. And these are things that we have to really start pondering and thinking about, praying about. Um, remember those in prison. Remember those who are losing their rights. Remember those who are losing their churches because they're standing up for truth like that pastor in Canada. Or John MacArthur, who was standing up against things in California. You know, are we praying for them? This is what Hebrews is commanding us, telling us that we need to be doing. 
Okay. So, going on to verse 4 here in Hebrews, it says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Well, that word honorable there is in the Greek precious or extremely honorable. It's the exact same word used when Peter says that we have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That word precious is the same word here for honorable. Marriage is precious. Precious like the blood of Jesus. I'm not saying it is the blood of Jesus. Don't take me wrong. I'm not saying marriage is a, uh, what do they call it in the Catholic Church? A sacrament. Okay? No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is it is put on the equal preciousness of that. And I think that we have lost that in our society today as well. My wife was also telling me recently about a, a wife telling, coming and talking to her about other wives always talking bad about their husbands, complaining about their husbands. And just how sad it was. She says, I, I enjoy my husband, you know. No, no, Tara didn't say that. <laughs> I think she did tell her that too, but... <laughs> you know, when I speak on the godly family, I talk about this a lot as well. That, that means also husbands. When you go to the hardware store or you get together with your buddies or whatever you're doing, you should never be talking bad about your spouse because the two become one flesh. That means that you are one, and you're, if you're going to put your spouse down, you're putting yourself down. And this is such an honorable, precious union that God has put together. He says it's honorable among all. And he says the bed, the marriage bed is to be, to be kept pure, undefiled. You should not be sleeping around before you get married. This is something to protect like you protect the gospel. It's so important. Why? Because it's a picture of the church, of Christ and his bride. I think we all know that. But he's contrasting this and then says, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So this is a big thing. Like I said, we're going to come back to this and talk in more depth after we're done with Hebrews. Just look at fornication. Look at marriage in a deeper way. But I want to just touch on it a little bit here. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Yeah. It is a blessing. And you know, I think it's important for us to realize that this is a God thing. I think that it's a powerful thought when we think about marriage in that way. That this is something that God even desired. It is not good that man should be alone. And we've talked about this, you know, about the false impression of love that, you know, TV and movies and all of that have given us. And then when we grow up and our marriage doesn't fit this romantic comedy that we watched on TV or this princess movie or whatever the case might be, we're disappointed. And we think, oh, you know, this was a bad thing, and I should have, you know, whatever. No, this is not right. Proverbs 19:14: houses and riches are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Houses and riches are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife comes from God. You should be praying for your kids right now for their spouse. Praying for them on a daily basis because it is one of the most important decisions they'll ever make. Now, you know I'm a proponent of homeschooling. I'm not saying that you can't you know, go to Christian schools or public schools. Sometimes that's what your circumstances may merit. But I'm a big proponent of homeschooling. And one of the biggest reasons that I found later on in life was this. Homeschooling, one of the benefits was, yeah, we could control the curriculum. But that was the smallest of benefits. 
the greatest benefit of all was the environment we put them in, the culture they grew up in, the friends that they hung out with, because we have gained two beautiful, wonderful daughter-in-laws, not to embarrass you guys, but that I don't think we would have gotten had we not homeschooled our kids. And we couldn't ask for better daughter-in-laws. And uh, uh, don't do that, no. We couldn't. It is. It's because God provided it. And he did that, I'm confident of, because of the prayers that we had been offering up. And so don't forget to constantly be praying for your kids and their spouses. And I was visiting with somebody here last week that's really struggling because of singleness. And I thought, you know, we need to be praying for these people. We need to be praying for them because they're hurting. It's not good that man should be alone. And we need to be praying that God would provide somebody for them. And I thought, you know, I'm going to start praying for that. Let's start praying for him. So, I, I could go on and on, but Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and man and his wife, the man and wife, were not ashamed. There is something supernatural that takes place in a marriage that I can't put into words. In my message on the family, I always say God's math is different than ours. Ours is one plus one equals two. God's math is one plus one equals one. That's what it says. The two become one flesh. That means what happens if you get a divorce? I think you're less than one. You're a half. Something's missing. I know some of you have been divorced, uh, but I'm not, there are some reasons that the Bible gives that are for permissible divorces, right? Unfaithfulness, marital unfaithfulness, things like that. And so, but what I'm saying is this, it doesn't change what God's word says about divorce. If the two become one, and now you're one, and you split up. This is why God says, Jesus himself said, what God has joined together, let not man tear apart. He's saying, I've, I've made a union. You can't, don't tear that apart. He says, I hate divorce. Why? Because it's a picture of Christ and the church. Right? And again... That whole picture, we could talk a whole sermon on that alone in the fact of why could Jesus... Remember, you, you read the book of Malachi and other places in Scripture, we see God divorced Israel, didn't he? But it also says in Scripture, if you could divorce your wife and they're unfaithful, you can't take them back. You can't marry them unless what happens? Their husband dies. Romans talks about this. A, husband, a, a wife is bound to her husband as long as her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage and is no longer an adulterer even if she marries again. Right? So in order to get married again, she says your husband needs to die. Put this as Christ in the church. How could Christ take his people back? By death. We're the bride. The husband had to die. Jesus died on that cross, rising from the dead, allowing him to take his bride back. See, that's the picture that God is painting in marriage. Okay? It's a beautiful picture. It does. Yeah, Proverbs 31. Anytime you read about marriage in Scripture... Put it in the perspective of the church and Christ. It's a beautiful thing. So God has made a way for us to be united with him. Yeah. Now, again, another beautiful picture of the law explaining the, the New Testament. 
okay, why he had to do some of these things as well. Now, granted, there's forgiveness. I, all of those things tie into that. But uh, anyway, uh, point being, there's a spiritual thing that goes on in a marriage that I am not smart enough to, to describe to you to even understand myself. But we have lost that in our society. We have made it so that marriage is just something that we do for convenience, for a tax break, for, you know, so I can sleep with, that, sleep with them so that, you know, I'm not looked down upon by grandma and grandpa, whatever the case might be. It's so much more than that. It is a covenant, a marriage covenant that is precious. And I think, going back to what I was saying before, homeschooling, uh, I think J.C. Ryle has a book that talks about this, Lessons for Young Men, and he talks about the fact that you will, chances are you're going to get married from somebody in your friend circle. 95% of the time you get married from somebody within that circle. So if you allow your children to be a circle of people that have a different culture than you, there's a 95% chance that they are going to get married from that circle. Now again, I'm not saying it's impossible to do that. I went to a public school, you know, all through high school, junior high, elementary. My dad was a public school superintendent. I'm not saying you can't do that. I'm just saying the benefit that we saw in homeschooling was controlling that circle a little bit. And it's beautiful. It was a blessing. So, moving on, Hebrews 5.25, I could talk forever on that. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. And I love this. How? Cleansing her. He's talking to you husbands by the washing with water through the word. I don't get an opportunity to do it very often, but when I have in some marriage counseling, when there are problems between the husband and the wife, one of the first questions I ask the husband is, are you doing devotions with your spouse? Are you reading the word to her? Are you cleansing her with the washing of the word? Of course, you know the answer. It never is a yes. And it's like, guys, you are to be the spiritual heads of the home. Fathers are to be the spiritual head of a household. And today... That has all been, been lost because all oh, were equal and whatnot. And as I say in my presentation all the time, it's moms that are making sure the children are getting out of bed to go to church. It's moms that are making sure that the children are getting trained. It's moms that are even making sure dad's out of bed to go to church or Bible study or whatever the case might be. Right? The Bible says fathers are to be the spiritual head of the home. And because our culture has lost that, and fathers are not leading and having, making sure devotions are being done, making sure you're praying with your children, praying with your wife, doing these things. No wonder we have such a high divorce rate even in the church today because we don't take this seriously. Now, women, we can talk about you too. And I believe way back in Genesis we see, and I think I maybe recently talked about this, I don't know, but... Um, Bottom line is we see that in Genesis when the curse happens, the woman is cursed with what? Yeah, you know it, but everybody else is saying, pain and childbearing. You all remember that one. Pain and childbearing, pain and childbearing. But there is more. And, and your desire will be for your husband. I always say when I read that, I thought, thank you, Jesus. She's going to want me. <laughs> your desire will be for your husband? What kind of curse is that? That's not a curse. But that's what it says. Well, it's because of the word for. In Hebrew, there it's sulka. It means to control. And in context, it fits so much better. Your desire will be to control your husband. But he will rule over you. You see, women, you have a natural desire because of the curse of sin to rule over your husband, to have control over him. But 
Part of the curse as well is that that man is going to rule over you inappropriately with an iron fist rather than ruling with you as a queen, rule over you. So we both have problems. Men, I don't know how women can love jerks like us and I don't know how in the world we can love our wives when they're so doggone unsubmissive. Yeah. (laughs) One perfect marriage in here. <laughs> you know, I am convinced that if women loved their or were submissive to their husbands, men wouldn't have a problem loving them. And if you know, men would love their wives, women wouldn't prob- probably have a problem being submissive. If we were both submissive to the roles God has ordained in a marriage, I think those marriages would work. But the problem is, we're both too stupid to figure out how to do that. And that is why you need God in your marriage. You need the washing with water in the word because it's through the word that you men get the strength and ability to love your wives like Christ loved the church it is through the word that you women can submit to us jerks when we're being idiots and I'll be honest I have failed miserably on my part in this as a a husband now, I have seen this modeled by some friends of mine that just blow me away as well. It's like, wow, how he loves his <laughs> Andrew just said, you're welcome. <laughs> and Jamie's laughing the hardest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks for coloring. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've seen some guys love their wives like there's no way I could have done it but they did it by the power of the word it's that simple and I've seen some women be so unbelievingly godly women to some men that are impossible and it is by the grace of God <laughs> No, um, I'll look at my wife at that one too. I mean, guys, this is what I'm saying. We all, we all stink. That's just the bottom line. We all do. We can't do this without God. And this is why we need that word. And so as a couple, if you guys aren't in the word, get in the word together. This doesn't count. This is good being here. For Bible study, but this doesn't count. You need to do this on your own, together. Um, very important. I also love this part. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I always say, did Jesus come and say, hey, I want dinner at six, rub my feet, do this, do that. How come, dinner, how come the floors are dirty? No. He said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. So husbands, if we're going to love our wives like that, we're going to serve our wives. And again, you won't be able to do that without the power of Christ. But anyway, um, there is no greater love than Christ showed in loving the church. And so he sets a standard. There is no greater standard. And I, like I said, I fail miserably. But that means this, guys, there is absolutely no room for a husband to say, well, I'm, I'm married already, so I guess i got to put up with it. Too late. I, I, I made a commitment, so I'm, I'm stuck with it now. Aren't you glad God didn't do that with you? Well, I guess I'm stuck with it. <laughs> no, for God so loved you that he sacrificed everything for you. And that's the standard. No room for saying, well, I'm stuck with it now. If you care about your own well-being, then you need to care about your spouse. That's, if any of you are having marriage problems right now or struggling, I'm telling you that's the answer right there. When I do marriage counseling at all, I'll tell you this too. Sometimes I know that there are women out there that are impossible. No matter how much you love them, they're going to go away anyway. I've seen that. 
But my first thing when I do marriage counseling is this. It's the man's fault. It's the man's fault. What are you not doing because your wife is not feeling loved? So, you know, if you're having problems, ask yourself that. Why is my wife not feeling loved? I'll leave it at that for now. First Peter 3, 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considered as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. I love the fact that the Bible records that Rebekah was buried with Isaac. Abraham was buried with Sarah. Leah was buried with Jacob. Why do you think the scriptures record that? Because there's something deeply spiritual about that, being with them for an eternity. I think it was here, we just talked here not long ago about um, somebody praying for his wife to have a baby. I don't remember if that was Hannah being prayed for or who, but I said, first of all, I love the fact that the husband, we saw when the husband stepped in, I think it was Sarah, when the husband stepped in, was it Isaac and Rebecca? It could be a number, I don't know, but Isaac and Rebecca. When the husband stepped in, then we saw a result take place. Why? Because the husband's a spiritual head. He's supposed to be leading that household. And so if you're not praying for your wife, and your wife is, is struggling with something, are you praying for your wife for that? Treat them with respect, and, and he says, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. That's important. If you're not taking care of your spouse's needs, your prayers are going to be hindered. I could talk about respect and love too. I'll just leave it at this. Go do a word search for love and see how many times it tells a, a wife to love her husband. If I'm remembering correctly, I think the number is zero. But it constantly tells them to respect your husband. I think the reason being is because women don't have a problem loving. It is so natural for them to love. It's almost like God just put it in them. But because of the curse, boy do they have a problem respecting. Now on the flip side, men, go look how many times it says to respect your wives. I think, I think this is the only place. But it says a number of times, husband, love your wives, love your wives, love your wives. Why? Because we're pretty slow on that. We are not very good about love. And so the Bible is kind of meeting our weaknesses there. So anyway, I'll leave that part alone there. Like I said, I, I could talk about marriage a lot. Um, verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 4 continues here. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. I will probably talk more about this in greater detail later, but for now, like I said, we're just going to touch on this. But I want you to see that this sin of fornication, sexual immorality, sexual sins are unique in Scripture. They are treated differently than other sins. Um, I don't know, I don't remember if I'm going to get to it or not, but 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 6, says, All other sins a man commits are outside of the body, but the sin of sexual immorality is a sin against the body. All other sins are different, but sexual sins have something unique about them. And we'll talk a little bit about that here, but I'm going to take you back to the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. And we remember that the council is meeting over the topic of circumcision. And as we talked about before, he says, listen, we're not going to give you a whole list of things to do because Moses is read in the synagogue every Sabbath. You're going to get the law of God. But we're going to require you to do this, these four things. And he lists these food laws. Yeah, food laws in the New Testament. Don't eat meat with blood in it. Don't eat food sacrificed to idols. 
don't eat food that has been strangled. And then there's this fourth one thrown in there that's not a food law. Abstain from sexual immorality. Of the new church beginning, the Gentiles being welcomed into the church, those were the four things that were told. Of all the things that they could do, this is the list that's given. But sexual immorality is included in there. Why is that one separated? Well, here's that verse that I just kind of quoted here. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And it's going to continue as I'm going to show you in a minute, but I want you to see every one of these things that the church, the brand new church is being told to do, all have something to do with our unity with God. We are the temple, and we are to protect our temple, what goes into our temple. That's one reason why I think food laws are included, especially what he's talking about here is the blood, right? Satanists drink blood. Why? Because they believe they're partaking of the life of that creature, that person in some cases. And God says, you don't do that. Right? We are to partake of one man's blood. We just read that tonight in John chapter 6. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. There is something about that that is reserved for a unity in the temple of God. Sexual immorality is the same thing. Why? Because you become one. He says, you unite yourself with a prostitute, you have now become one. One with a prostitute. This is why the marriage bed is to be kept pure. Because God is not, we're not supposed to prostitute ourselves. Right? We're not to be a harlot to God. It's reserved for one. One husband. It continues and it says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? By the way, this word flee is really strong. It's like run for your life. Sex unites you. What you put in your temple unites you. So, yeah, there's a unity aspect. Again, I don't understand how all of that works and whatnot, but I believe it because Scripture says it. So, um, but our body being a temple, I don't think that we really understand that very well. I don't think we protect that temple very well. We mark it up. We um, cut it up. We fill it up. Beat it up. All kinds of things. Well, the thing that I want you to understand here is that the reason this is so important is because why? God dwells in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in us. Can God dwell in something unholy? No. Okay, you can't. It's an abomination of desolation when we defile the temple. Right? Let me show you what 1 Corinthians 3 says in regards to how serious this is. Verse 17. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. It's kind of interesting. I was visiting with something just, uh, somebody just last week in regards to the vaccine. And I'm not taking that vaccine, as you know partly because I'm going to protect my temple. But I sent them the uh, Daniel Joseph message that was in response to focus on the family. 
folks on the family had a thing about it, which really disappointed me because it was all one side. And Daniel Joseph responded to that, and I thought it was very well done. And uh, he had this verse, and I don't think that the person who listened to it understood that he was quoting scripture because he talked to me, he said, I just don't, I don't like the fact that he talked about God will destroy you if you defile the temple of, you know, that God will destroy you. That's, that's not right. Now, if I would have just come to you and said, if you defile the temple of God, God will destroy you, you all probably would have had your hair stand up on the back of your necks and go, ooh, I don't like that. But then I, could, I just quoted scripture to you. That's what this is saying. That's how serious this is. How is it that we don't see this when we read the New Testament? How serious of an offense it is when we defile the temple of God by living in willful sin, by sexual immorality. I mean, you thinking about sleeping around? You ought to maybe meditate and memorize this verse. Now, again... Hey, there's such a fine line that you've got to walk sometimes. Because I don't want to give anybody the impression that says if you ever had premarital sex, oh, God's going to destroy you, it's too late, you're, you're going to burn in hell. It's not what I'm saying. And that's not what this is saying. Again, it's coming back to this willful sin. But if you continue to do that willfully, and you know it's wrong, I'm going to suggest to you, you may not know Jesus Christ. You may know of him, but you don't know him. And yes, you will be destroyed. But all of us sin. But I want you to understand, all other sins you do, they're outside of the body. But this one, there's something special about the sin of sexual immorality. And that is why it's singled out here in 1 Corinthians or, uh, chapter 3. The devil knows. There's something in the spiritual realm. There's something spiritual the two becoming one about this that he knows. I don't understand it all. I just know that there's something different. And so absolutely. Even David with Bathsheba, it's after his sin with Bathsheba that he says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. I don't know if there's a connection there or not, but I just know it's after that that he says that. Going back here to chapter 13, verse 4, uh, you can see that as we look at this verse again, it should make us think, a little bit more about what we are surrounded with in this world and you know our view of sexual relationships and, and keeping the marriage bed pure all of that kind of thing fornication like I said we'll, we'll come back and talk more about that in greater detail because it is so important but the bottom line is there's something spiritual here alright uh, Leviticus 18:25 says for the land is defiled Therefore, I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. This was because of sexual sins that we see in Leviticus. I can't help but wonder about America, that if this land has become so defiled by the shedding of innocent blood, so defiled by fornication, so defiled by this saintness and the, you know drinking the blood, the Hollywood stars, the politicians, the whatever, whoever, but all of this stuff that we hear about going on, um, the, the, the pornography, the sex trafficking that has certainly run rampant, is this land going to vomit us out? because God will allow that, because the, the spiritual aspect of what goes on with that has become so dark and so deep. Can't help but wonder. Well, verse 5 of Hebrews 13, let your conduct be without covetousness. So here's a, a, another one that he's hitting that we're going to have to circle back on, is the covetousness. Um, be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You want the cure for covetousness? It's right there in that word for. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Keep your eyes on him. 
If you have him and you're focused on him, you don't need to be coveting anything else. You've already got the prize. So, and by the way, this word, word covetousness in the Greek, it really means basically what it sounds like without, you know, love of things of this world, a, a, a strong desire for things of this world. We can look at some of the, what he's talking about and it takes you back to the Torah again too. Thou shalt not covet is one of the Ten Commandments, right? Um, and ultimately, I think coveting can become idolatry because it becomes our God. You cannot serve both God and mamma, manna, mam, mammon. I couldn't get that. I had too many words floating around in there. Um, so anyway... Um, you can't serve two masters. You're going to either hate the one or love the other. And, and so it, when you covet something, your heart is chasing after something other than God. That is idolatry, and idolatry brings the wrath of God. Um, There's so many things that we could kind of throw into this category that we won't get into too much, but, you know, gluttony. Coveting of food so much. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7 says, We brought nothing into this world. It is certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. I love this because it basically just says this. If we have food and clothing, that's enough. That is all we should really care about. That's enough. And he says, those who desire to be rich, isn't that what drives the lottery system? They fall into a temptation and a snare into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction. It's like money... It goes on, I believe, in this one. Yeah, actually, it's coming up here. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It is not money that is evil. It is the love of money that's evil. And some have strayed from their faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I think about... I warn my kids about this a lot because it's easy for us, especially with technology today, to always want to be a TikTok famous. Uh, it's just an example of many. I've talked to him about this. It's not, I'm not throwing him under the bus. It's just a warning. It's a warning that we can strive for the things of this world and to be TikTok famous or to be uh, Instagram famous or whatever to get this big following in any of these social medias and I have a goal that I, I want to make six figures that's my goal in life and I think that's what this is saying some have strayed from the faith in their greediness rather than being content with just food and clothing it's like no I want to make six figures guys there's so much more in life than that if that's what your goal is I'm telling you right now, your eyes are fixed on the wrong thing. You will be disappointed. And it will never be enough. Bottom line is, if you are depressed because you don't have what others have, I think you've been ensnared. And you're, you need to examine that. You need to renounce that. You need to get rid of that. If, if you're depressed because you don't have what others have, and... You're in trouble. You need to repent. And I think all of us, myself included, have found ourselves in that situation. I have been ensnared at times. I, I think I've shared with you, I remember when I went to my brother's house, when they, he retired in uh, Arizona, I just found, man, this would be so nice to be able to retire like this and sit around and, you know, enjoy life and the nice weather and blah, blah, blah. And I found myself almost coveting, well, no, not almost, coveting that kind of life. And I was being ensnared by that. 
And I, I had to I had to renounce that and repent. Not to say that he can't do that. But when I didn't have it and it was almost depressing, then it's like there's something wrong with me. I need to repent. So all of us, I'm sure, if you haven't at some time, probably will deal with that. So, Verse 5 says, Let your conduct be without covetousness, as we said. Be content with such things as you have for he himself has said, I will never leave you for, nor forsake you. Like I said, that is the cure in the word for. If you know Yeshua, if you know Jesus in his presence, then you're going to be content. You'll be content with that knowing that you have better and lasting possessions. And you will gladly let them confiscate your property. Because this is not home. This is not where your happiness and joy is bound up in because you have Yeshua. And I hope that that's an encouragement to you. I'm going to close with this verse, Philippians 4.11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to, be, how to abound everywhere and in all things. There's that being abased, there's that abound. Both spectrums. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Keep in mind, the guy who's writing this was shipwrecked, you know, beaten, left for dead, imprisoned, all of these things. And yet he also was a Pharisee of Pharisees. So... This is the place we should strive to get. The mindset of this. Because I believe trouble's coming in America. And I think that the blessings that we have once enjoyed, we ought to have the right mindset that, you know what? I don't care if it goes away. If I have food and clothing, that will be enough. So, as Hebrews talks about, don't let that covetousness ensnare you. So, that's touching on three big ones. Marriage, covetousness, and fornication tonight. And prayer. So, actually, four big ones here. Praying for those in prison. So, uh, with that, we'll close. Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for your word. Uh, it gives us many challenges, and as we've talked about tonight, we can't do it. We, we're just incapable. We are just so filled with the flesh. But Lord, we do not live according to the flesh. We live according to the Spirit, and by that Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. We cry out to you tonight to just fill us with an understanding, a peace, and a, and a, a contentment that we would not chase after this world to build this kingdom here, but that we would chase after the kingdom that you are preparing for us, and that the things of this world would grow strangely dim. That we would see one another as you see us and that we would look for ways to encourage, to help, to uplift, to strengthen, to, to share with one another the word. And that you would be our all in all. In the name of Yeshua we pray, amen.